If you'd please turn your Bibles to Isaiah. So turn to chapter 53, mark that with your finger, and then chapter 6 is where we'll start reading from. And once you've found that, if you'll please stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he took with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, the blind, or, and blind their eyes. Least they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a timbermeth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is a stump. Now Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like the root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened his mouth not. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was so by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for or and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put, or he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days, and the Lord will right, prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be, to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their inequities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. All right. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I'm actually really excited about this week and next week's messages. Uh, this week we're going to be looking at, at some reasons for unbelief. And next week we're going to build a strong case for belief. Not only to believe in God in general, but also belief in Christianity as the only true religion. In today's world, the discussions we will have over the next two weeks are considered to be ridiculous and even impossible. Uh, how on earth, with all the scientific, scientific evidence against God, can we possibly believe that God exists? And even if God does exist, how can you possibly believe that we have the only right answer to as to which God exists? Even now, you may think that I'm absolutely crazy to be able to prove those things in the next two weeks. So first, let's, let's start by asking this question. Why do people not believe in God? What stops people from believing in God? You may actually be surprised to find out that many atheists will actually admit that they have a criteria by which they would actually decide to believe in God. Now, I'm going to tell you up front that many of these criteria are very problematic, yet let's be fair and hear their concerns. And don't worry, I won't leave you in the dark. At the end of the message, we'll talk about, we'll kind of break this down and show you where the problems are in these criteria, but we'll have to wait to the end for that. In 2010, atheist blogger Greta Christiana gave six criteria by which she would accept the existence of God. I'll give those criteria to you in brief. First, religion must have what philosophers call falsifiability. A religion must have falsifiability. Now, this is actually very helpful. I'll explain what this is. Um, philosophy teaches that if something cannot be proven false, then it's more likely to be false. Now, again, that sounds counterintuitive, but let me give you an example. Um, what if I told you that I caught a six-foot catfish? Right? You might be a little like, yeah, prove it. Right? How can you prove that? And I say, well... You know, I had the six-foot catfish, but I let it go. So, I can't, how am I supposed to trust you? I didn't take a picture of it. No, I, you just have to trust me that I, that I did. Well, you, you'd be like, how can I prove you wrong? There's no way I can prove you wrong. Therefore, I'm less likely to believe it. 
Now, again, in religion, uh, this is this would be very similar if you if you know anything about the Mormon religion. Uh, Joseph Smith claimed that he found golden plates that were written by an ancient tribe of, of, of Israel that had sailed to America. And this golden plates is about Jesus coming to the United States of America to teach, to, to call these people and to preach the gospel to these, to these people uh, and give them the true gospel that was going to get messed up by the apostles. And they wrote it down on these golden plates. And Joseph Smith found the golden plates. But then God told him, don't show anybody those golden plates. So nobody ever saw them. And so he says, I found these golden plates. And people say, well, where are they? Well, God told me I can't show them to you. Well, you can't prove him wrong then, can you? Well, only I'm allowed to see it, so you can't see it. Well, then how, how on earth can we have, is there any possibility to say that what he's saying is wrong? This is what her concern would be, is that if, if religion does not have falsifiability, it's less likely to be true. Uh, from her observation, every religion claims that there is no way that they can be proven false, even without actual evidence, and therefore they cannot be true. Her second criteria is that there must be an unambiguous message, something that could not be misinterpreted by anyone. The example she gives is that she thinks what God should do is write in 300-foot tall letters in the sky. I am God. I exist. Here's what to do. And it's in every language so that everyone on the entire planet sees it, understands exactly what's going on, and there's no other explanation. They all see it in their own language. They understand it completely, and there's no other explanation. She says that would be something that would prove God's existence. I'd be willing to believe that God exists in that case. Okay? Third, she says that there must be clearly fulfilled prophecy about the future. Now, for her, this would be something like a sacred text. Like, let's say if this was in the book of Isaiah, that there was something that said uh, in complete detail that on September 11th, 2001, an Abrahamic religion, religious group that doesn't exist yet, Islam, uh, uh, would, would fly airplanes, which don't exist yet, into, a, into buildings in a city named New York that doesn't exist yet. If Isaiah had written something like that, sure, why not believe it, right? That's, that's, how do you not believe that? Right, so this is, a, this, is, this is one of her criteria then. Fourth, she says that sacred texts text must be completely accurate about science. Science can't be able to disprove anything written in the sacred text. So for her, uh, she says Genesis cannot be true because Genesis disagrees with the Big Bang. Therefore, Genesis must be false. Fifth, followers of a specific religion must be found to have their prayers answered more than any other religion. Uh, and those followers must be wealthier, healthier, and happier than any other people in any other religion. And, or, and, uh, and none of this can be explained by any natural or social means. If you say, well, you know, people in America, Christians that might be in America, well, of course they're wealthier because they live in America. They have this opportunity. They have that. If you can explain it away with social or natural means, it doesn't count, right? So she's saying that that's not good enough evidence. So there must, she says that their, their prayers must be answered at a higher percentage. They have to be wealthier, healthier, happier than any other people for us to be able to believe that that person's religion is true. And finally, her last criteria is that there must be undeniable proof of the existence of the human soul. Now, now that we've seen this particular lady's reason for unbelief, um, let's turn to our passage this morning. 
Now, get a little bit of a background before we jump into this passage. Now, after welcoming Jesus into the city as their king, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And we remember a couple weeks ago, and, and even as Didi mentioned, that there was a parade. They said, Jesus is our king. We want him to be our king. Within that same day, if not the very next day, we see them not, no longer believing in Jesus. After seeing miracle after miracle, even seeing and, or, and hearing about first-hand accounts, the raising of someone from the dead, the crowd still refuse to believe in Jesus. We'll see three major points in this text. First, unbelief rejects the evidence pointing toward Christ. Second, we'll see that unbelief results, or can result at least, in permanent spiritual blindness. And third, improper belief reacts with improper practice. Let's read this passage together and then we'll dive in. Starting in the last half of verse 36. It says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they could not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes, from, that comes from God. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this difficult passage that deals in detail with unbelief, God, I pray that we would be open. Lord, this is not a fun passage to preach. This is not the most exciting or encouraging message that we will hear, but yet your word is, is clear and explains where unbelief comes from. Your word gives us insight into why unbelief takes place. Lord, help us to be open to hear and to learn from your word. In your name, amen. So most of this entire section, from the end of verse 36 up to verse 43, is John's explanation of the aftermath of Jesus' previous teaching. If you remember last week, um, Jesus had detailed how he, the Messiah, must suffer and die in order to be glorified and to bring salvation. We already saw last week, the people started getting a little bit concerned about this. Like, how, how can you say that? How can you believe that? Where, where is that in the Bible? Right? And he, he, they're, they're very concerned. They're, they're, they're already starting, the, the belief, their trust in Jesus is already starting to unravel uh, in the previous verses. Jesus ended that section last week with an invitation to believe in and follow him. And here in these verses, notice Jesus does not speak at all in these verses. Here John explains what's taking place. He explains the reaction of the people. Um, again, so we have verse, uh, the end of verse 36 is when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. We see Jesus kind of starts moving away from the crowds. And look at verse 37. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
the wording there is, is, is more specifically saying that they had carried this idea that continuously did not believe in him. The unbelief that they already had continues on and carries forward. And beyond this moment even into the future, they continue to not believe in Jesus. Even with all the evidence before them, they still refuse to believe. Think back to our, 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 our atheist friend at the beginning of this. Do you really think that she would believe if she saw the evidence she was looking for? Here we have people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, or they talked to people directly who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And they still say, nah. No, I don't believe it. says in verse 38 that their unbelief occurred to fulfill Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 1. It says there in verse 38, so the, it says they, they did not believe in verse 37, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now in Isaiah, uh, from chapter 40 onward to the end of the book, the, the term, the arm of the Lord, is a reference to the servant of God that is described in these passages. There is a series of songs about this particular servant. We read one last week, but it was part of this song last week, about this servant who is exalted and lifted up. And today in Isaiah 53, the same exact servant who is exalted and lifted up, he is crucified and put to death, or he is put to death. Right? He's wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The same servant. This is who the arm of the Lord is. So in verse 1, it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, the people to whom God has revealed his son, the people to whom God has revealed this servant, still will not believe. John says this is a prophecy about what's going on right now. These people who are seeing Jesus face to face, they're seeing the very Son of God before them, performing miracles. God speaking from the sky that we just saw last week and saying and, tell, and speaking directly to Jesus that was meant to show them, this is the guy, follow him. And yet they still do not believe. Um... It says then, uh, so this is, this is to fulfill what, what would happen in Isaiah is how John explains this. Uh, we'll get more into this when we get into this next section here. But for, for uh, just to pause for a second, um, uh, let's, let's uh, kind, of, kind of track in where, where we are at this moment in the passage. Right? We've seen then, we're seeing then that unbelief rejects the, reje rejects, uh, um, sorry, I'm losing my wording here. I apologize about that. Uh, that unbelief rejects the evidence pointing toward Christ. You think if anybody had evidence, it would be these people right here in John chapter 12. If anybody had the evidence, right there it would be them. Jesus tells us in, in uh, verses 44 and 45 that uh, he, says, he says this, um, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. In other words, the opposite is also true. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting the Father. If you believe in Jesus, you're also believing the one who sent him, the Father. 
To reject Jesus is also to reject the Father. The problem then with these people is not just a rejection of Jesus. They are not only rejecting Jesus, they are also rejecting God the Father, who they think they believe in. But ultimately, they are rejecting Him. We also see uh, that having the answers, we also want to understand that having the answers does not guarantee that someone will believe. Now again, many of you know I'm working on a PhD in, in theology, so you'd think, hey, maybe he has some answers and he probably knows the answers. He probably convinces people all the time, right? Because we always say, well, if I don't want to talk to people because I might not know the answers to their questions, and if I don't know the answers, they might not believe. Let me tell you, that is absolutely false, right? Uh, I'll give you an illustration here. A friend of mine, his name is Brian. He is, uh, he's an atheist, um, and I was working with him one day, and we started talking about Christianity. He was asking me. He knew I was a student uh, uh, studying this stuff, and he wanted to know some more. He knew I was in ministry and, and just kind of wanted to learn more from me. Uh, he's, he's an atheist. Again, he was open to listening. However, um, when it came to, we, we started discussing, and I'm going to talk to him a little bit about what we're going to talk about next week, about the resurrection. Right? That the resurrection, as I see it, the resurrection, I've said this many times before, the resurrection is the best proof we have that Christianity is real. That Christianity is the only true religion. And I went through the same argument. I won't ruin it for you today. We'll talk about this more next week. Um, but I went through this argument saying that, that we can know for sure that Jesus rose from the dead based on historical data. There is proof that Jesus rose from the dead. The best explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus rose from the dead. And his answer was, people can't rise from the dead. I said, yeah, that's what a miracle is. Good point, right? It's miracle. He said, miracles can't happen. It wouldn't have mattered what I told him. He has a presupposition in his mind. Resurrection is impossible. Therefore, Jesus cannot raise from the dead. So no matter how much proof you give me, I'm not going to believe it. That's where unbelief is at. For him as an atheist, he, has, he, he, he claims that he is objective. He claims that he is open to hearing the other side. But really, there is a closeness to him. There is a worldview difference. And here's even funnier. I told him, I said, you have a naturalistic worldview. You believe that nothing can happen outside of the natural world. It's a worldview called naturalism. You have that preconceived idea. That's what stops you from believing. And he said, no, I don't. Why do you talk to somebody like that? I'm completely objective, right? Science says it's impossible, so therefore it's impossible. Well, how do you convince somebody otherwise? You can't. Sometimes people just don't believe. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. If you're preaching the gospel to somebody and they have questions and you're not sure if you have the answers, I guarantee you, even having the answers might not convince them. So take heart. If you don't know the answers, it's okay. Only God can save them. Unbelief will reject even the evidence staring them straight in the face. The same thing can also be said of our atheist friend that we mentioned at the start. Will she really believe if she had all the evidence? There's no reason to believe that she would. In fact, as we'll see at the end here, she is even arrogant to believe that she would. What an arrogant statement. I'd believe it if only God would prove it to me. Really? How full of yourself can you possibly be? And we'll see why that's the case. 
Secondly, we see in the text here that unbelief results in permanent spiritual blindness. This is the most difficult part of this passage. And it gave me, I had had a lot of conversations this week. So I'm going to share with you the best I can how I understand this passage and what I believe God is teaching us in this passage and what I believe Scripture teaches us in this passage. Verse 39 makes a very strange or makes a very striking statement. It says, therefore, they could not believe. This prophecy had been given, and, they, and that's why they didn't believe. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has, bl- he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. It sounds like God prevents them from being able to believe. Now, how do we, how do we make sense of that? This quote comes from Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10. Now, John's quote also is not exact. This is another difficulty with the text. John interprets the text for us. In fact, the, the, uh, the, the quote itself does not follow any ancient Greek or Hebrew version of Isaiah 6.10 that even exists. So, why does John cite the passage this way? For this, we need to understand something about how, the New, how New Testament citations work. New Testament citations of the Old Testament are hardly ever exactly what we find in the Old Testament. Rather, their citations are, are, are just as much interpretations as they are quotes. So John's not only citing Isaiah 6.10, but he's also telling us the proper way to understand the passage. That just in case you thought there was a different way to understand this, this is the right way to understand this. So not only are these people not going to believe, not only will their hearts be hardened, but it is God who is the one who's doing the hardening, according to John. Remember, he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit just as Isaiah was. So John is helping us understand the correct way to interpret Isaiah's writing. Now for many of us, a text like this creates a major problem. How can God be the cause of someone's unbelief? Does that not remove their free will? In the next couple of minutes, I want to briefly help us wrap our minds around this apparent problem. Uh, in reality, the problem only exists on our end. Let's be fair about this. In Scripture, divine sovereignty, or God's control over created beings, is never stuck up against human free will. They're never put in contrast to one another. They're never made to fight. Scripture does not put these in as if there's something that are, that's, that's, that's a fight. The two are never at odds with one another. To put it in another way, there is not an instance in Scripture where someone truly would act differently if God had sovereignly chosen otherwise, say, not to harden their hearts. Let's look at our passage again. The crowds have continuously rejected Jesus. Right? We saw that in verse 37. And now, and only now, it is mentioned that their react- the rejection is caused by divine action. We've seen this throughout the book of John. Let's kill him. Let's stone him to death. Let's get rid of him. We're done with him. We don't believe in him. And only now does it tell us that God has stopped, their, stopped them and hardened their hearts from believing. With the way the crowds have acted, do we have any reason to believe that they would have acted otherwise, that there was no divine cause? Now let's explore this topic a little deeper. When God freed the people of Israel from the bondage of Egypt, the king, who's called Pharaoh, 
uh, refused to let the people go. After all, why would he let them go, let, let go of his slave labor? That doesn't make any sense, right? Just get rid of all my slaves. Thank you. I'm glad to let them go. No, it would be stupid, right? That would be a pointless thing for him to do. So, God began to rain down terrible plagues upon the nation of Egypt. God turned all the water into blood, corrupting their drinking supply. God filled the nation with frogs. God covered the land in gnats and then with flies. During the fifth plague, God brought death to all the livestock in Egypt. Up to this point, the text tells that Pharaoh hardened his own heart against what God was doing. Every time he said that he would let them go, he changed his mind. It is only after the fifth plague that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart becomes passive. The text tells us the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Not that he hardened his heart, but that his heart was hardened. And after the next plague, it tells us that it was God who hardened his heart. Um, the scriptures are more specific after the sixth plague. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. But scripture does not minimize the responsibility of Pharaoh. Keep in mind the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was uh, by God only comes after Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. We have no reason to believe that Pharaoh would have acted otherwise if God had not hardened his heart. Now, to give some more insight onto this, turn with me, if you can, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Some scholars find this to be a favorite passage. This is, uh, this, is, uh, this is helpful to, in our own discussion that we have here. Um, it talks about this in some very uh, clear terms. And we'll walk through this passage, starting in uh, chapter 9, verse 14. Um, let's walk through this real briefly. Paul says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Whose decision is it to have compassion or to exert mercy? It's God's decision. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Our salvation is not dependent on my choices. It is dependent on the mercy of God upon me, a sinner. My salvation is not dependent on me. It is dependent only on God. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, an argument we may say the exact same thing, right? You may say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? If God is forcing people, if God is hardening people's hearts and hardening their wills, how is that person responsible? Good question. Look how Paul responds to this. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will, will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured so much patience with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even whom, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were called my people, or those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us had not left us offspring, we would, we would have uh, been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What should we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law would lead to righteousness, uh, that, uh, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion of a stone of I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Scripture is clear. Salvation only comes from God. And people will harden their hearts against God. Augustine explains it this way. He explains that God's hardening of their hearts and binding of their eyes is done simply by withdrawing His aid. This is a doctrine that we must come to terms with. None of us deserves salvation. If God gives salvation, it is only because of His mercy and grace. If God withholds His salvation from someone, He is completely righteous to do so. In Romans 1, we see this clearly. In sin, mankind has used their free will to choose to worship creation rather than creator. And they have traded what is natural for what is unnatural. So then God gives them up to their own selfishness. As a side note, we, we typically come to passages like these and say, you know, if God had not hardened their hearts, they might have chosen to believe. But again, nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture does affirm free will. But just like in Romans, free will in Scripture is hardly ever seen as some aspect of mankind that will choose to do what is right if given the opportunity. The Scripture says that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. The first man and woman with no sin in the world. So they had no sin. Adam and Eve had no sin in the world. You would think that they would be the ones that would choose right. Right? They didn't have fallen natures yet. Yet, they used their free will to reject God. Why do we think that we would do otherwise in any other situation? Our free will is not trustworthy. The only one who is trustworthy is God. This is why only God can save. This is why Jesus, the Son of God, had to come as a man and die for our sins. We could not and cannot save ourselves. It is, in fact, the very height of arrogance to shake a finger at God and say that He is wrong not to extend aid to those who do not deserve it. None of us deserve salvation. 
If God has saved you, it is only by his mercy and grace that you have been saved. That you have that salvation. If you're here today and you're not a believer, if you've not received this salvation from God, it is only by God's grace that you're here in this place. It's only by God's grace that you have the opportunity to be here today, to hear the message of salvation. Uh, You have the opportunity then now to respond in one of two ways. You can harden your own heart and choose not to believe. Or the frightening, uh, or, or, you, or you can choose to believe. The frightening reality is that it is possible that God may stop pursuing you if you don't respond. God may give you up, not because he's mean, but because you have chosen again and again to reject him. And he allows you to make that choice. Unbelief can result in permanent hardening. It's a scary thought. Now, before we move on to our final section, one thing I want to point out in in verse 41. John says that Isaiah made this prediction. Look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In the context of John, this him can be none other than Jesus Christ. So let's look back in Isaiah. Let's think back to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah laments that no one chooses righteousness. He says, he says, Whatever they think is good, they, whatever is good, they think is bad. Whatever is bad, they think is good. They've got it all backwards. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, God brings Isaiah to the throne room and reveals himself to Isaiah. And Isaiah realizes the reality of himself, that not only is everyone around him unclean, but that he himself is unclean too. He he submits then to a call to preach a message which will tell the truth about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. A message which would harden the hearts of the people as as you may have already hardened your hearts against this message. Isaiah's purpose then was, uh, was to be faithful to both God and humanity by telling the truth, not by finding human success. Isaiah's goal was not to grow the biggest church. Isaiah's goal was to tell the truth about humanity. That we are sinners. That we need salvation and we cannot get that salvation on our own. That would harden anybody's heart. You're telling me I'm not good enough? You're telling me I don't deserve to be saved? Who do you think you are? It's God's word, guys. This is not my thoughts. I would much rather not believe this. Guaranteed you. I would much rather believe that everyone's going to get saved and everyone's going to go to heaven. That'd be so much nicer to believe, wouldn't it? Scripture does not teach that. We must not fool ourselves. John then explains that the vision of God that Isaiah saw in the throne room when he says, when he sees the angel say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. John tells us that who Isaiah saw was none other than God the Son. John and Paul both tell us that Jesus, the Son of God, is the image of the Father. Therefore, it makes sense that Isaiah saw the Son. It is because Isaiah saw the holiness of God revealed in the Son of God that he could speak so harshly about the condition of man. 
standing before a holy God, he realizes his own weakness and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. And if you think back to Isaiah, how does Isaiah receive salvation? It is by God offering him salvation, touching the coal to his lips and saying, you have been healed. That's it. Isaiah had to realize his own wretchedness before God saved him. Same with us. We've seen that unbelief rejects the evidence pointing toward Jesus. And we also have seen that unbelief can cause, can result in permanent blindness or permanent hardening. Third, we see that improper belief reacts with improper practice. Our final point here is improper belief reacts with improper practice. Look at these last two verses. Um, In verse uh, 42 and 43, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. With all the unbelief, there seems to be a glimmer of hope here at first. Many of the authorities believed in him. Right? You see this dark beginning of all these people not believing in Jesus. And you say, oh, there's some people who believe in him. Great! But the hope that positive news does not last long. Perhaps, perhaps among these believers were Nicodemus, who we saw in chapter 3, or maybe even Joseph of Arimathea, who, is, who we'll see giving up his own tomb to give Jesus a proper burial. However, at this particular time, they fear the Pharisees and will not make their faith known. Remember, the, at this time, the Pharisees are on a mission to have Jesus killed. Surely they will also destroy the reputation of anyone who follows Jesus. Indeed, the motive is clear in verse 42. They don't want to be put out of the synagogue. That was the social center for them. To not be allowed to come to the synagogue would have been, would have been a social disaster for them. And because they didn't want that shame, they chose not to confess Jesus as their Lord. God has described belief like this before. Or John has, descri- has described belief like this before. In previous chapters, there have been those who have believed on Jesus because of his miracles. These instances are followed closely by rebuke from Jesus. Belief only in miracles is not necessarily belief in him. Verse 43 then gives the final judgment on these pseudo-believers. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They could not let go of their power as authorities. They could not relinquish their status as members of the synagogue. So instead, they could, they could not confess their belief in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus gives this warning. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus had repeatedly said that those who follow him will respond with action. Yet these people do not. Perhaps after the resurrection, uh, these were among the early, the, uh, the early believers in the book of Acts. But at this point, their unwillingness to confess Jesus Christ uh, is, is an indictment against them. They love the glory of man rather than the glory of God. Do you desire the glory of man over the glory of God? Maybe you think that lying or cheating to get a promotion is preferable to being obedient to the Lord. 
Maybe you'll think that others will respect you at your job or, or at school, and they don't know that you're a Christian. Whatever the situation may be, any time we respond in disobedience to the Lord or in fear of those around us, we show that what we truly believe about Jesus. If you're afraid to share the gospel with someone because you are afraid they will think you're a religious nut, who is really your God? Who's really your God? Who do you really worship? Let us not be Christians who desire the fading glory that comes from man, but rather the eternal glory that comes from God Almighty. Let us be bold about our faith in Christ. As we finish up, I want to I rewind back to the beginning. We met uh, an atheist lady, and she gave several criteria that would cause her to believe in Jesus. Let's look back at what she says here, and let's mash that up with Christianity. Maybe she's just missing the picture altogether. Let's look at this. She says, first of all, falsifiability. Right? She gave the criteria. It has to be falsifiable, otherwise it can't be true. Right? We looked at the Book of Mormon, and we looked at Mormonism, and there's, there's, there's no way to falsify the claims of, of Joseph Smith. So it's probably not true. What about Christianity? Now again, it's easy to say in a church, there's no way you can prove Christianity wrong. How ridiculous do you think we are? Do you know there is? We're going to look at this next week. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if the resurrection did not happen, then we are the worst of all people to be. We are the most to be pitied. If you can prove to me that Jesus did not raise from the dead, I'm out. Christianity is false. However, the best explanation for the empty tomb, as we'll see next week, the only explanation that holds any water is resurrection. You have to come to me with something else besides, well, resurrection's impossible, so he couldn't have risen from the dead. How do you know that? It's the whole purpose of miracle, guys. If you believe in God, there's a possibility that God can intervene in the natural world, therefore resurrection is possible, right? So falsifiability. Christianity's falsifiable. She makes the claim in the blog, no religion is falsifiable, therefore all religion is stupid. Christianity's falsifiable. What about that? If you can prove that Jesus did not raise from the dead, you can prove that Christianity is false. So her second criteria was an unambiguous message. She used the example of sky writing, right? She says, God has to write things in the sky for me to believe it. What about all that God did before these people? What about the ministry through Jesus? Raising people from the dead, turning water into wine. God himself speaking from the sky, very similarly to what she wants, right? God speaking from the sky. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Did that change anybody's mind? Maybe a couple people. But here, these crowds continue to not believe. Why does she think that everyone will believe if God makes that happen. She actually even admits that it's possible that someone might say, oh, that's aliens. But, you know, the simplest answer would be God, not aliens. So, well, if her argument then is that God has to present this in a way that no one would misunderstand, the possibility of all of the however many billions of people 
would see the message, completely clearly understand it, and nobody, especially that guy in the History Channel, would say, it's not, it's not aliens, right? And the guy in the History Channel, it's like, it's aliens, guys. Everything is aliens. Right? The guy with the crazy hair, right? Um, I'm sure he would say it's aliens. So if that one guy doesn't believe, and that one guy thinks it might be aliens, does the whole thing fall apart? I mean, how ridiculous is that? I mean, the, the, the fact that she would say that that must be, that would prove it to everybody and that would prove it to me. That's wrong. She's wrong. There's no way that that would prove it to her. And next she says, clearly fulfilled prophecy about the future would definitely prove it. Right? She is the example of 9-11. What about prophecy after prophecy written hundreds of years before the Bible was written, before the New Testament was written? Hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, she actually has an answer for that. She says the New Testament authors rewrote, retold the story of Jesus to fit with the prophecies. They reinterpreted Jesus so that it fit with the prophecies, so therefore they could say that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Well, right there, that's her presupposition, right? She's coming to the New Testament saying, the New Testament's a bunch of nonsense, so therefore, everything it says is nonsense. So the evidence that we have of Jesus fulfilling prophecy doesn't count. Well, how can you do that? If you discount the evidence in the first place, how are you supposed to be objective? It doesn't make any sense. The next one, she says that it must be completely accurate about science. Genesis disagrees with the Big Bang, therefore Genesis must be wrong. Well, no duh, Genesis disagrees with the Big Bang. Genesis claims that a divine being created it. That it wasn't happened by a Big Bang. Well, science proves that it. Tell me, if you can name me two scientists who believe exactly the same thing about the Big Bang, I'll give her a cookie. There's just not, if you look in the scientific world, there are no two scientists who believe everything and agree with everything exactly about the origins of the world. None. They may generally believe in the Big Bang or something like it, but they don't agree on the details. No two scientists really and truly believe every single detail about science. So why would you say that the Bible has to be held to something that your own scientists who you put all your faith in can't even do? What a ridiculous claim. It's silly. Well, Genesis doesn't agree with the Big Bang. Well, neither do all your scientists. Right? Why, why is the Bible held to a different standard than your own scientists? It's, it's, it's a silly claim. And then lastly, she says that, that prayers must be answered, and, uh, or one of, the other, one of the last ones, she says prayers must be answered. Their followers must be wealthier, healthier, and happier. Scripture has an answer for that. It's called sin. Sin exists. Therefore, followers of God do not all have a, the same experience. In fact, 1 Peter tells us if you are a follower of God, you will face persecution. Wealth is fleeting. Happiness is fleeting. Um, health itself is fleeting because sin exists. To have that as a criteria doesn't make any sense. And, and what we see then for her is that she then claims to have authority over God. She says, I'll believe in God if God does everything exactly like I want him to do it. And then we respond like Paul does in Romans. Who are you, oh man, to tell God what he must do? 
Have you ever had that friend or maybe even been there yourself? You know, God, I will believe in you. I will follow you. I will trust you. If you just answer this prayer, if you just do this one thing for me, who are you to tell God what to do? Who are you to say, God, I will only believe in you if you do this one thing? One particular atheist, a famous atheist, his name is Richard Dawkins. He's famous for having said, if God showed up in my office, shook all the books off my shelf and pointed at me and said, I exist, you need to believe in me, then I would believe in God. Which again, as we've seen, probably not. In fact, a more honest atheist said it this way, that even if God came into my office, shook all the books off my shelf, pointed his finger at me and said, I am God and I exist, I would point my finger right back at him and say, I hate you. That's the truth about unbelief. Those who refuse to believe in Christ, ultimately what they are saying is, God, I hate you. It's not that they can't believe, it's not that something doesn't make sense in their mind. It's that they don't want someone telling them what to do. It's that they want to be God in their lives. And ultimately, they hate God for it. So again, I want to encourage you, if you are a believer and you share your faith with people, understand that. That should break our hearts. Charity's been telling me about a friend of hers that she grew up with in high school, one of her best friends from high school. They, 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 loved, they, they loved hanging out with each other. They talked about the Bible all the time. And she has since abandoned the faith. She has since, I don't believe in any of that stuff anymore. Me and Charity were talking about this passage this week, and she was broken about this. She said, this is who she is. This is so sad. It's true. It's very sad. We need to have an understanding of where people really are in their unbelief. We need to pray for them. We need to share the gospel with them. Because outside of God, there is no hope for them. Who do you need to share your faith with this week? You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to share with them who Jesus is. Who do you need to share the gospel with this week? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity we have to look at your word, to, to study it, Lord, to even delve into deep and difficult doctrines. Lord, I thank you for, for those who have come out today, Lord, those who have sat through and listened. I know it's just as hard to listen as it is to study and to preach it. God, I thank you for their attentiveness. Lord, I pray that we would submit to these doctrines, these difficult teachings. Lord, I pray that it would cause us and take us to action. Lord, that we would no longer be, uh, be afraid of, of other people, that we would no longer live in fear of man and desire the glory of man over your glory. Lord, that we would no longer see unbelievers as an enemy, but Lord, rather see them as people who just need you. Lord, I pray that you would bring people to Jesus. I pray that you would use our church to bring people to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be with, with, with each of us this week. May we find someone to share our faith with. Lord, not for our glory, but for your glory and your glory alone. May you do a work among our people. In your name, amen.